0: Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're delving into Victorian spiritualism.
1: But before we get into all that spooky stuff, what is going on?
2: We've mentioned it a few times that there is something coming. Well, that something is currently being laid out. It is currently taking shape from that formless, horrific mass that it previously was, being pulled together into some semi-coherent and vaguely accommodating drive-through RPGs, very weird and archaic layout policies, (laughs) bringing together the issue 11 of the Blasphemous Tome.
1: Yeah, we've received a bounteous gift of submissions this issue and it's going to be interesting to see how many of them we can actually use in this issue.
0: Also we should maybe mention that issue 5A has just been republished in the past week. So if you are a patron, then you can get access directly to the PDF and uh, there's also a print on demand version and backers over $3 get a code for a uh, at cost version of that via Drive Through RPG. This is issue 5A which was previously issued as issue 5. But there was a 5.5. So Matt mm-hmm. had the, uh, the, the good idea of calling them 5A and 5B so that it's clear there are two issues with the number 5. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, it would have been better if we'd have just called them 5 and 6. But yeah. <laughs> we didn't because the second one was uh, at the time was PDF only and we wanted to differentiate. But
1: these things happen. And like every other issue of the tome, this has got a scenario date.
2: Yeah, it's number 22. Uh-huh. which is uh, based for those in the know especially those people that have visited my home and gone hang on a minute this floor plan looks familiar <laughs> inspired by the real life and not so horrific exploits of when we moved into our house and found there was something weird and hidden under the stairs
0: and scott you've been on the Miskatonic playhouse
1: So, the Miskatonic Playhouse have been playing Regency Cthulhu recently, and Newman invited me to come on and voice an NPC. I think it was originally supposed to be one episode, but I've recorded three with them now, and it looks like I'm going to be recording a couple more. It's been a lot of fun so far. They gave me an absolute bastard to play, and I've been relishing it
2: why do i find that's not difficult for you given every <laughs> NPC in every scenario you have ever written
1: and <laughs> well, speaking of the miscatonic playhouse i understand that newman's interviewing you soon paul
0: yes at the time of release of this episode i think the interview will probably be out so we can link to it in the show notes otherwise look for it it will be out soon I understand, admitted, that this time of recording, this is going
2: to be about a month in the past. So Paul made, particularly me, very, very jealous and uh, gr- grumbled. <laughs> I'm sorry, <rumble>. Matt. <laughs> uh, you had some fun times over in Ann Arbor, if I'm uh, not mistaken.
0: Yeah, um, it was uh, Chaosium Con. I was there for the best part of a week. Yeah, it was lovely. Got to meet lots of people, including uh, John Sumro for the first time in person. Oh, nice. Good to meet John. And... Got to play a game with U2CAN Cthulhu, with Bob Geis and his crew, which is great fun. Also a, a fantastic game run by Matt Ryan, who does a lot of the maps for Chaosium. And yeah, just a generally uh, a nice time with lots of lovely people. So yeah, recommend it. And now on to our main topic, Victorian Spiritualism.
2: While it's waned in popularity, spiritualism was a significant movement in the gaslight and classic 1920s eras of Call of Cthulhu. From its origins in mesmerism to its development into a religion, spiritualism can be a rich source of inspiration for scenarios of all sorts. This is not meant to be a thorough history of spiritualism. If you've looked at the runtime of this episode, it's only an hour and this is a big topic. (laughs) We are dipping into a large topic, looking for interesting things to use in our games. Our main focus is going to be on Britain in the gaslight period, but we shall also mention some details from the USA. We'll also skip over many details of séances as we plan to discuss those in an upcoming episode.
1: Spoiler alert!
2: Unsurprisingly, perhaps, we are going to approach spiritualism with no small degree of scepticism. <laughs> Me! <laughs> Given that its originators were admitted frauds, this should be uncontroversial. But its evolution into a religion means that spiritualism has become an article of faith for some people. We do not aim to belittle or mock its adherents, but we can't promise the same of spiritualism as a concept or practice. Our main references for this episode are Calling the Spirits A History of Seances by Lisa Morton, The Table Wrappers by Ronald Purcell. And Medical Meddlers, Mediums and Magicians, The Victorian Age of Credulity by Dr. Keith Souter, who came up with a very long title that spreads nearly <laughs> two lines.
1: <laughs>
0: it's a good title. I like it. But also, The Victorian Age of Credulity, just that's any age, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure people were more credulous in the Victorian age than they are now.
1: Well, actually, Sasha does make a good argument for why it was a particularly credulous age, which I think we'll touch on.
0: I don't know, with QAnon and anti-vaxxers and David Icke and myriad things.
1: I'm not saying that we're any less credulous now, but I think these things ebb and flow. And yeah, this was definitely a a peak time for credulity. (laughs)
0: So, what is spiritualism?
1: Well, let's start out by looking at what spiritualists actually believe. And this is quite a tricky thing to pin down, because there are a lot of different schools of spiritualism and a lot of different practitioners who believe very different things, which makes it hard to pick out a standard set of beliefs. But there was an article that was quoted in Modern's book written by a chap called Dale Owen back in 1874, an article called The Spiritualist at Work, that does come up with some useful precepts. In
0: summary, Owen states that spiritualism accepts that there is a phase of life after the death change, as he calls it, or (laughs) death as we know it. He states that the dead can communicate with the living through sounds, telepathy, and moving objects, although doing so is difficult. Which is probably a good thing, really, for us. If if it was easy, it'd be chaos, wouldn't it? If the dead were talking to us all the time. These communications are generally guided by the living. That's interesting, isn't it? The living tend to be the ones who uh, facilitate this communication from the dead. That's because the dead are bashful. Apparently so. We have to draw them out. Although spirits may offer some unexpected information. I mean, it's all unexpected to me. (laughs) Such communication can only take place in the presence of a medium and does not break any natural laws.
1: That last one really intrigued me that this is all within the laws of nature, that he argues that there's nothing supernatural about this, that all the things that the spirits do all fit with the laws of physics and so on as we understand them.
0: It just seems to me like certainly now and i just imagine like pretty much forever when someone you're close to dies it's a fairly natural thing to after they've died to have a strong desire to talk to them and Mm. and indeed to actually talk to them if you've ever sat beside someone's grave and talked to them yeah you are talking to the dead but it doesn't actually mean they're hearing you but i think there's just a a strong fundamental human desire to do that And and it's that and i think that is quite a natural thing i think you know in natural in the way that most of us whether we believe in an afterlife or not are kind of drawn to have those conversations
1: One thing that we might see running through this in terms of credulity is the fact that I think people really want to believe that they can speak to their loved ones and that there is some kind of continuation after death. And this is something that I experienced myself in a very small way when my father died. Not that I went to see a medium or anything like that or believed that I spoke to him, but I had this really weird experience on the day of his funeral where I was up in Scotland staying at my parents' house with my mother, and I just woke up in the middle of the night in the guest bedroom with the feeling that my father was in the room with me. What was weird about it was I could smell him. Each person has a unique scent. And just for a few moments, I felt like I could smell him in the air just beside me, and then it dissipated. Hmm. I've never had a dream or that experience of coming out of sleep, or I've hallucinated a smell. I perfectly accept that it was hypnagogic or a hypnopompic experience and that grief had directed my mind to come up with that stimulus but at the time it felt very real if someone as skeptical as me can have that moment of thinking oh hang on was he really here then yeah i can see how people who have got much more spiritual beliefs can absolutely accept this.
0: Yeah, when I say that's entirely natural, I think, I think it is. I think it's just a part of the, the grieving process. Um, mm-hmm. and, the, and the kind of, our minds do that. And also, you know, there's a desire to do it, but also it just happens without a desire, I think, it, mm-hmm. you know, or at least a, a conscious seeking of it. It can just manifest, I think, as it did with, well, clearly. I can just imagine that that has been happening to humans as long as we've been self-aware, really. Mm. This whole spiritualist movement seems to be born out of that desire. When one looks at it as a movement starting in the mid-1800s, I kind of feel like it didn't really start then. That was just a new Mm. packaging of it. It's like, you know, we're we're taking it and packaging it in, in a new brand for it kind of thing but it's not it's not a new thing it's, it it wasn't new then
1: oh yeah i'd Hardly recommend, if anyone's interested in the history of this kind of stuff, reading that Lisa Morton book that we mentioned, The History of Seances, because she doesn't just cover the spiritualist movement. She goes back to ancient Egypt and uh, the Sumerians and the ancient Greeks and stuff like that and looks at the origins there and how they developed through necromancy and so on into the modern day. These things just echo throughout different cultures and different forms.
0: Or necromancy, as she says.
1: Yes. Yeah, that was weird.
0: It's perfectly fine. It's just an unfamiliar pronunciation to me. It just, every time she said it, I was like, you mean necromancy? But that's a small quibble on my part. I shouldn't find fault with people's pronunciation
1: what we're referring to here is she did a little lecture for the 14 society the london 14 society which is on youtube which summarizes a lot of the stuff that's in the book and i will link to that from the show notes because if you don't have time to read the book it's a really good primer
2: as oscar wilde once said we are divided by a common language So, what practices were associated with Victorian spiritualism? It's all good having these ideas and beliefs or uh, theories, but what did they actually do about them? Assuming you want to incorporate spiritualism, mediums and or seances into your games, what kind of practices are involved?
0: Okay, well, there's a whole bunch of different things that form part of this movement and are associated with it, and we're just going to look at each one in turn. I guess the big one that most people would think of when they think of spiritualism is mediumship. That's like the the flagship item, I would say.
1: A medium basically is someone who, well, mediates. Their role is to communicate with the dead and bring these messages back to the living. And there are a few different varieties of medium.
0: So mental mediums connect the spirit world telepathically, relaying messages from the spirits of the dead. The connection may involve the medium seeing, hearing, or otherwise sensing the spirits. Trance
2: mediums are a type of mental medium who lets the spirits speak directly through them rather than relaying messages. I was going to say, why be the middleman? The color of the definition of the word medium there. <laughs> Just let them jump in you and do all that meat puppetry for themselves. In some cases, this allows female mediums in the guise of spirits to make statements about political and social matters that would otherwise have been denied to them.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting part of the spiritualist movement that we'll come to later in that it became very political and associated with a lot of progressive politics at the time. And I think a big part of that was because so many mediums were women and that this was a, I was about to say a medium, this was a venue that allowed them to have a voice.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to be explored with the fact that most of them were women, especially when some of them, to quell the, the inquiries as to whether they were genuine or not, or whether they were using like props, would perform naked in some cases. Mm. Now, I can kind of see that drawing some, some people to it. We're talking about the Victorian period, known for being quite repressed, this whole uh, thing of having close proximity to young women, you know, squished up around the table. I don't know, there, there seems to be a whole other aspect, kind of sleazy aspect to it
1: as well. And then you have physical mediums, who are people who can produce phenomena that can be observed by other people. These phenomena include rapping sounds, the movement or production of objects, and the creation of spirit bodies or even ectoplasm. And we'll go into detail on all of these things later on.
0: Direct voice communication is somewhere between mental and physical mediumship. In this case, the medium makes a connection to the spirit world that allows the spirit's voice to be heard by the living. This sometimes uses spirit trumpets for (laughs) amplification because you need a good spirit trumpet. At least they have the right kind of instrument. It's not spirit flute
2: or spirit oboe. They went (laughs) for a proper instrument.
0: Are you a fan of the trumpet, Matt? It sounds
2: like you are. I used to play in a brass band, so yes. <laughs> yeah, I know you did. Did you play the trumpet? I used to play the cornet, but my favourite brass instrument's the flugelhorn.
1: Flugelhorns do have the coolest names.
2: Yeah. They do. The spirit flugelhorn would have been better. <laughs> and the best sound. It's a much more mellow sound. It's got a lot more... I could ramble on about that, but it's nothing to do with mediums, so back on track!
1: <laughs> but spirit trumpets, while I think about it, one of our listeners did point out that we completely neglected to recognize the spirit trumpet in our episode about the changeling which we did a little while back because there was that séance that took place in there and there was a spirit trumpet on the table and we commented on this object at the time oh, and right. none of us recognized it for what it was and yeah oh. there was a spirit trumpet in that scene
0: oh right no i don't i don't remember that mm.
2: next up we've got automatic writing like mental mediumship, automatic writing involves a spirit speaking through the medium. In this case, using a writing implement and directing the medium's hand. This would be an amazing way that I think I could get scenarios written a hell of a lot quicker if this actually worked.
1: <laughs> Just outsource it to the
0: dead. You'd need to make contact with somebody who, was good, who had passed away that was really good at writing scenarios though, Matt.
2: Yeah, that's the hard bit. The American spiritualist Henry Slade pioneered a form of automatic writing which the spirits wrote directly on slates or paper. This, unsurprisingly, was proved to be a simple bit of stage magic.
1: Say it isn't so! My God! (laughs) I think we're going to be seeing a lot of this throughout this episode.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot of this that uh, you just kind of think, okay, so if I were a stage magician, I Hmm. could convince these people of an awful lot of stuff. And a lot of it does just seem like so-and-so did this thing, and we, we really don't know how they did it. Have you ever been to see a stage magician? I don't know how they do those things, but, you know, it is just like smoke and mirrors. Quick, call Pen and Teller. Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, I don't think it's a coincidence that most of the great debunkers of spiritualists have been magicians. Mm. We'll perhaps make some mention of Neil Maskelyne in this episode, who was a Victorian stage magician who did a lot of debunking. But also Harry Houdini, James Randi, even Darren Brown, they're all stage magicians and they've all done exposés or, or even reproduced the elements of uh, seances mm. and mediumship. Darren Brown, for example, actually did a TV special, oh gosh, about 20 years ago, that was him doing a, a seance and using a lot of these techniques, just basically using stage magic. He didn't explain how he was doing things, but you know, he was very open about the fact that it was all faked. I'd really recommend seeing that. It is on YouTube, and I'll put a link in the show notes, because some of the things we'll talk about here, he explicitly does in that episode to you know, quite good effect.
0: And then we come to table turning in a process similar to a Ouija board, Table turning or table tipping purported to allow spirits to spell out messages. Participants would sit around a table with their hands atop it, and the medium would speak the letters of the alphabet aloud, and the table would move or tip when the correct letter was spoken. Amazing.
2: You know, when you say table tipping, I'm just thinking this is what we call here house Tetris or furniture Tetris. It's just moving lots of furniture around in different and inventive ways.
1: Yeah, but not generally when a whole group of people are sitting around it holding hands. I hope. That would probably make it quite awkward.
2: You've been to my house, you've seen how big some of my furniture is. You need multiple people to pick up that stuff.
1: (laughs) And I think it's fair to say that table turning is probably about the simplest form of mediumship to fake. And well, we'll go into, again, some of the techniques that that people use to do this. But uh, simply, I, you, know, you just move the fucking table. You use your hands, you use your feet. In some cases, they just kicked the tables. And, yeah, it worked.
2: One of the prime uh, sources here are the wonderful documentary, a.k.a. the first few minutes of uh, the... Ouija prequel that uh Mike <laughs> Flanagan directed a few years back the sequel that was surprisingly and had no reason being better than the original film that it's uh based on that had a fantastic little um God, not like montage but fantastic little scene of all the different uh tricks that they had set up for that room that pretty much exemplifies this mm. Next, we're on to apports. No, not the places where ships come and dock on the coast. One of the more popular forms of physical phenomena. Apports involve materializing, in inverted commas, objects or smells, supposedly from the spirit realm. I can manifest a smell real goddamn easy (laughs) most of the time. So that is nothing required that's uh, at all skillful about that.
1: I've read some accounts in a a few of the books I went through of mediums who would produce the smells of various perfumes on demand or just waft them through the air as part of the seance. And this was the spirits manifesting these wonderful odors from the spirit realm. There's nothing wonderful
2: about the odors I can manifest, don't uh...
1: Well, that seems a really effective one, because it's like one
0: of the least tangible senses smell, I think. Mm. You know, when we do smell something familiar, it can be very emotionally affecting. So I can see if they could find out what perfume somebody wore and have that somehow accessible. That would really convince people, I think. Mm.
2: That is a skill we've had come up a few times on games with Into the Darkness, where we've uh, got referred to the third perception skill, smell hidden.
1: Yes. Except spot-hidden covers smell. This is that quirk of Call of Cthulhu where spot-hidden covers four out of the five senses is everything except hearing, which gets its own skill.
2: Mm.
1: My hearing is also as bad as my spot, so... And Lisa Morton in her book tells of seances that were held by a woman called Mrs. Guppy, which is a great name, where sitters could demand that spirits bring them particular kinds of fruit, and these these fruits would be apported and appear in front of them or in their hands. The same section also talks about how other mediums of the time apported things like snow or even live eels.
0: But not on request, right? I mean it's not like name a fruit avocado
1: that's exactly what they did except i imagine because this was victorian london that they just went with the the fruits that were readily available i can't imagine too many people sat there and thought oh yeah bring me a star fruit or a dragon fruit or something
0: kumquat or dorian yeah i'm guessing since then we've had it made available a lot wider range of fruits Mm. so (laughs) <laughs> they, I don't know. i'm sure they did have quite a range of fruits available it wasn't like they only had three types of fruit they could eat
1: yeah i imagine it was mostly apples grapes and pears
2: it'd make it difficult if you did have a in there because you'd smell it from the next city block away <laughs> oh that's true <laughs>
1: yes
0: they had hothouses for pineapples and stuff like that didn't they so
2: thinking of it with a name like guppy it's hardly surprising that they should get a fish in there or in this case an eel
1: hmm yep one attract fish goes wrong Mm. snow is a good one though it is yeah
0: especially if it was in summer that would be really impressive well yeah i mean exactly
2: right (laughs) (laughs) not so great in winter but yeah next up we've got healing although not as common as other spiritualism practices a number of mediums provided psychic healing you know that whole lay on hands thing Mm. morton recounts an advertisement of professor Raiden. he was a (laughs) self-described i love this
1: (laughs) that's why i put it in here
2: (laughs) in inverted commas a psychopathic healer he obviously went to the same medical school as hannibal lecter (laughs) who made use of spirit physicians to cure physical and nervous ailments because when it all goes wrong you can blame the ghost or
1: blame the spirit I just love the idea of spirit physicians. Just these manifestations of medical practice from beyond the grave. I guess relying on dead people to do your medicine probably works quite well because, you know, they're on the other side. They've seen all the things that can go wrong that have killed other people, probably including themselves, and they know what to avoid. They're much more experienced than living physicians.
0: Well, there seems to be a belief in spiritualism that after death you continue to develop and learn mm. and, and improve. So it's not like they're just dead people necessarily. Yeah. You know, like you and I. They've ascended and they've got access to greater knowledge in some way. So I guess they're drawing on that. And also this this idea of spirits healing people, I don't that's by no means unique to spiritualism.
1: I think what's interesting about it is it was comparatively rare in spiritualism, that in spiritualism they tended to focus much more on the messages from beyond and mm. these parlour tricks, basically, and there was comparatively little psychic healing compared to other spiritual or occult practices at the time.
0: Paladins are never such a popular class, I don't think. <laughs>
2: I do worry if it was some random person on the other side that came to you as this spirit physician. I want to have some kind of credentials. These are the kind of people that I'd like to see on their headstones, the little epitaph that just says, I told you I was ill.
1: Maybe it's a mid-level marketer from the other side who just wants to sell you essential oils. (laughs) Oh, God. More of a reason to get out of there while you can. (laughs) Oh, multi-level marketer, not mid-level marketer.
2: Next up, ectoplasm. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, that stuff that's uh, made famous in Ghostbusters?
1: Yeah. Oh, sorry, carry on. But yeah, Yeah. we'll come back to that, I think, in a moment. (laughs) Ectoplasma
2: is supposedly a filmy white substance exuded from either the spirit world or the medium's body. I make plenty of filmy white substances at the moment coming out of various (laughs) parts of me, so I can certainly understand where that comes from. Oh, that was disturbing. (laughs) I refer you to some of the inspiration for my material in the last issue of The Blasphemous Tome. But anyway... The word comes from the Greek ektos, meaning outside, and plasma, meaning a substance that can be formed or moulded.
1: You've referred to Ghostbusters, and I think that's probably where a lot of people have got their idea of ectoplasm from. You've got that slime, that goop in there, that famous he slimed me line. And the ectoplasm that was produced by the spiritualists in the victorian age was well I, I spoiler alert it was largely cheesecloth and muslin.
2: oh say it ain't so again you're ruining all my <laughs> preconceptions here
1: oh sometimes they'd make it a bit fancier by making it glow and there were other reasons why it might have been a bit sticky which we'll probably get to when we start talking about seances but mm. uh is a bit different to what you might expect from Ghostbusters.
2: Ectoplasm was first produced in the 1880s as a proof, in inverted commas, of physical manifestations, although the name didn't come into use until 1895. We'll go into some of the methods for producing ectoplasm in our upcoming seance episode.
0: Will there be recipes?
2: I imagine it's going to have a lot of sugar syrup or some kind of emulsifying agent. i have picture it more savoury. Well, If I'm going to guzzle that stuff, I want it to taste nice.
0: Well, savoury things can taste nice.
2: Yeah, they're not as sweet, but I mean, that play with my blood sugar far too much thinking about it these days.
0: I don't think medical science advises you ectoplasm to, like, deal with diabetes. Hey, I'll take what I can get.
1: And also, you exude ectoplasm, you don't ingest it. I I think you're doing this wrong, Matt.
2: (laughs) Well, it's kind of a cycle. It comes out one end and I can put it in the other, but...
0: Some mediums used spirit guides, spirits who took it upon themselves to assist the living, almost acting as a medium for the medium. One of the most famous was William Stainton Moses' Imperator, whose name became a byword for spirit
1: guides. You mean they subcontracted? Apparently so. But yeah, we see a lot of spirit guides in Victorian mediumship. And these spirit guides would run around, they'd do things in the seances, conveniently in the dark. But they were active presences, they'd perhaps pull on people's trouser legs or nip them, just generally take an active role in the seance. Yeah, it's all a bit weird. Well, it's all weird. It's everything's weird.
0: I think spirit guides is something that has stuck around that, that concept mm. of having a. Some people refer to it as a guiding angel or spirit guides mm. or so on. That's a still a pretty popular concept, I would say.
1: The idea of a, an external guiding intelligence certainly wasn't new to spiritualism. It's what the ancient Greeks referred to as demons these external intelligences that would provide you with intelligence and guidance. But I suppose the fact that these spirit guides would almost like prank the participants in seances, they'd go around and do like mischievous things or silly things that would just like prove that they were there for no reason other than, you know, (laughs) producing some kind of physical phenomenon.
0: And somebody having a spirit guide, I mean, that's a scenario right there, isn't it?
1: Oh, God, yes.
0: Because there's lots of openings for various mythos entities to be talking to somebody, communicating with somebody, and that person thinking it's their spirit guide that is uh, telling them to do these things, whatever those things might be.
1: What kind of mythos entities might fill that role? The one I'd default to for that would be a loy just because, well, that's the kind of thing that would cause absolute havoc if it got into your head and convinced you of of such things. We were recently
2: playing, until scheduling conflicts got in the way and we had to stop, we were playing some of these scenarios in the Shadows Over Scotland sourcebook that Cubicle 7 put out a while back. Mm. One of the books we were pointed to to come up with some character templates and occupations and the like were from the investigator's guide in the London box set that Cubicle 7 also put out as part of the Cthulhu Britannica line. Mm. And in there, there is, Tiff jumped on this, there is a spiritualist archetype in there or occupation. And one of the options is that you do in fact have a spirit guide and it Mm. goes through various different things as to what their personality is, what they look like, how they interact with you. And they can be vaguely useful, vaguely annoying, vaguely comical. But it's something that's in there. I don't think it actually pegs it down to say what this type of entity is, just what it Mm. looks like and how it acts. So, yeah, it's definitely material that has been at least dipped into Mm. partially out there.
0: Yeah, it just seems very rich for, for inspiration, for stories and scenarios,
1: yeah. And then finally, we have spirit photography. And this was something that kind of grew out of the parallel growth of both spiritualism and photography during that age, and it seems kind of inevitable that the two would merge together in some form. There had been a number of people who claimed to have taken photographs of spirits, and that became quite a popular thing in seances, people trying to photograph the events that were going on. But spirit photography as such didn't really take off in a big way until the 1860s, when there was this American photographer called William Mumler who claimed to, while he was taking a self-portrait, have captured a spirit in the background. And this inspired a number of his customers who suddenly wanted him to do the same thing. And so he did. He started off, I think, producing a few photographs like this and he was very, I think, cagey about it and sort of said, oh, it doesn't always work and the spirits can be fickle and so on. But then as the money started coming in, suddenly anyone could get a spirit in their photographs. And some of his customers started realising that the ghostly presences they were seeing in, in his photographs were actually other customers of his from his photographic studio. <laughs> mm. And, you know, he was just doing obviously double exposures and... If I remember correctly, initially, it was more complicated than that because the development process, I don't think double exposures were possible and it actually involved etching. But once the technology was there to do double exposures, well, suddenly spirit photography really took off. Something wrong with the plate
2: in the camera, maybe.
0: And it's great how even in the very early days of photography, there was this whole thing of strange photographs and goes to the images and, and, <laughs> and all of those things. This puts me in mind of Curlian photography, which doesn't really take mm. off until like, I don't know, mid 20th century, taking photographs of sort of energy fields and things like that around, you know, living objects.
1: Uh. I guess it's inevitable that two of the big things that photography was used for in the Victorian age was photographing ghosts and porn. <laughs> the latter you don't necessarily associate with the Victorian age, but dear God, they like their smutty photographs.
2: And the blur the lines and then you get into a very weird form of third-party necrophilia.
1: Well, on that uplifting thought, let's take a break for a short moment and then we'll be back to continue our discussion of Victorian spiritualism
2: you're listening to the good friends of jackson elias listen the donations keep this show running and every penny helps if you'd like to support the show please head to patreon.com slash good friends of jackson elias thank you
1: let's continue with a look at how spiritualism developed as a religion.
2: While spiritualism began as a loose series of practices, some followers moulded these into religious practices, forming spiritualist churches. William Stanton Moses especially popularised the incorporation of Christianity into spiritualism. You know, there was a dead guy who got back up, well a couple of dead guys who got back up and did stuff in the bible. The Spiritualist National Union, the main group of such churches in the UK, was formed in
1: 1890. So yes, that's just in time for the classic gaslight period. So if you wanted to incorporate spiritualist churches into your your gaslight Call of Cthulhu game, this is the right kind of era for that. It's very much the, the early days of spiritualist churches, but they were around. Spiritualist churches became much bigger things in the 20th century, but they certainly had their roots in this time.
0: It's interesting here how they do blend it with Christianity Hmm. in some way. And I think whatever you've got, if you can blend it with the popular beliefs of the time, that's a recipe for making it more acceptable and getting more bums on seats, really. I wonder with Cthulhu cults, At the lower level to get people in, you know, do they blend it with things that are popular? Like in some places, that might be Christian churches, in other places, it might be other things, but it's some way of blending what you've got and making it more consumable.
1: Well, we see that in The Haunter of the Dark, don't we? Where the Starry Wisdom Church Mm. purports to be a church, a Christian church, but it's not. It's really not.
2: You know, this group, they were just like any other snake cult. Yeah. Spiritualist services are generally led by mediums. Here they go again. With an opening prayer, an address, the singing of hymns, and finally, a demonstration of
0: mediumship. Some incorporate healing rituals as well. So I think it was Lisa Morton on the YouTube channel video where she was talking about her book who's who makes the point that all this singing of hymns created a lot of noise yes which was very good for like getting props moved around and setting things up uh, it was a great way of distracting people and obscuring other things happening
1: now for all this merging of christianity and spiritualism There was also a lot of backlash against this in the 19th century, particularly from the Catholic Church. They spoke out vociferously against the rise of spiritualism, equating it to necromancy and calling it satanic. It's probably no coincidence that spiritualism thrived in the UK and the US. These were the main centres of the spiritualist movement two countries where Catholicism didn't have the same kind of hold as it did in, say, a lot of other European countries.
2: Hmm. I remember reading through, I think it was actually the, uh, showing the prime example of my research on the topic, looking at one of the Wikipedia pages that spins off the main spiritualist page they've got there, and it said that Hmm. it thrived in English-speaking nations. I like the fact they put the more religious angle on it rather than just saying it's your language that dictates what you believe.
1: Well, I'm sure that also had something to do with it, because with it originating in the U.S., it was very much initially at least an Anglophone movement, and that made it easy to spread to the U.K., because, you know, as we'll see shortly, it was American mediums coming over here that actually got the British spiritualist movement going, and that common language certainly helped there. Hmm.
2: So, what were the origins of spiritualism?
1: Well, as we just touched upon there with the Catholic Church, necromancy. Necromancy certainly predated and perhaps informed some of this.
2: Pretty much every human culture has rituals for communicating with the dead, usually as a form of divination. Classical necromancy rituals differ from spiritualism in a few key aspects, however. These rituals were usually long and involved, like most magic. You go to things like D&D, it's fire and forget. You go to things like cults, and it's uh, rituals that take a weeks of preparation. This is more the cult end of the spectrum here.
0: Well, If you make it easy, anybody would be able to do it, and then they don't want that. It's got to be complicated, Matt. It's got to be complicated.
2: Mm. Yeah, these rituals that require extensive preparation. These were also usually conducted by individuals rather than groups. And the dead summoned were usually physical entities rather than spirits. So, again, kind of adhering to the more M.R. James aspect of a physical ghosty that turns
1: mm-hmm. up. Well, I think we talked a bit about that in our Ghosts episodes a while back, where this idea of ghosts as these intangible, ethereal presences is perhaps a comparatively recent one that may even have come out of Victorian times and stage magicians using things like Pepper's Ghost and so on. But, of course, necromancy attracted exactly the same kind of hoaxsters and confidence tricksters as spiritualism did. The techniques may have been different, but it still attracted people who wanted to perhaps take advantage of gullible people for their own benefit. And going back to that thing about the rituals being long and involved i guess this is one of the big changes with spiritualism in that it i was about to say democratized but not quite but simplified the process of communicating with the dead and turned it into much more of a an almost casual thing and we don't necessarily see that with all this elaborate mediumship stuff but It led the way to things like spirit boards and uh, Ouija boards and more informal seances, which we'll talk about in our seance episode, where you don't necessarily need a medium. And that, to me, is probably the biggest difference there between necromancy and spiritualism.
0: Did people go and see necromancers to talk to the dead? Or was it like necromancers drawing on the dead for knowledge?
1: I think it was more that you'd perhaps hire a necromancer and get them to either contact your loved ones or probably more likely get them to speak to the dead and get some kind of information about future events. Mm -hmm. That it was much more a form of fortune telling than it was what we consider to be mediumship and spiritualism.
2: Yeah, I remember doing some research on this uh, a while back for, I think it was actually one of the books I worked on for Vampire 20th Anniversary, uh, Rites of the Blood, uh, looking at the origins of uh, necromancy, because there's one of the clans in that game uses, uh, in inverted commas, necromancy, but it's just manipulation of ghosts and spirits. One of the origins that I read about there was that it's very much a, as Scott puts it, a divination. It was to get advice from the spirits which existed outside of time, that death was Mm. almost like an abstract, place or plane of existence where time didn't matter so they could see all of the past and all of the future. So you contacted the dead to get an idea of what was coming round the next corner so they would be almost like spiritual advisors to the rich and powerful to get that kind of information that they weren't normally supposed to have on this plane. And there's an element of that that crops up with going back to the main topic on Victorian spiritualism where a lot of industrialists and the upper class would go to uh, seances and the like or go to make contact with these people to get advice on but what's going to happen in the stock market next week <laughs> and we're very much looking for materialistic gain for very mm, much wanting mm. that glimpse into the future
1: i'm a lot less upset about mediums taking advantage of people like that than i'm about them taking advantage of people who are grieving <laughs> hell yes
0: and then we come to mesmerism Much of the terminology of spiritualism comes out of mesmerism. This is a series of techniques created by the German mystic Franz Mesmer in the late 18th century. Mesmer posited that there was an invisible fluid surrounding everything in the universe, which could be manipulated, a bit like the force. (laughs) Initially, this involved magnets. Magnets, yes, which... Still, nobody knows how they work. But he later came to rely on his own animal magnetism. He just had a high midichlorian count.
1: Duh! But yeah, this is where the concept of animal magnetism comes from.
0: Yeah, I love this. It's great.
1: I think at some point, we should probably do an episode on Franz Mesmer because yeah. he was... So fucking weird. The whole milieu in which he existed was weird, but his techniques were weird, his beliefs were weird, and dear God, so much of that stuff is gameable.
0: Well, I think another um, strange NPCs of history, Mm. he would be a good candidate for that.
1: And I think we should probably also do an episode on necromancy at some stage, thinking about it.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, can't go wrong with that. feels kind of more sinister to me, somehow, necromancy. Just, I guess it's just the word. Mm. It just has a more sinister sound, whereas spiritualism sounds more benign.
2: Oh, there is the, uh, one of the black marks against necromancy. It is listed as one of the it's nine or seven forbidden arts.
0: Mm. By whom?
2: Well, I know there was definitely the book of forbidden arts because I've used it in a scenario before that I believe stems out of more biblical teachings to say there yeah. are certain arts that are referenced in the Bible as being, no, you're not supposed to go anywhere near these.
0: Yeah, that kind of precludes any kind of talking to the dead and so on, doesn't it? Exactly. But... It's also things like divination
2: through bones, because spatulomancy was another one there, which did not involve kitchen utensils. It was (laughs) uh, bones in particular. But yeah, it lists a hydromancy, pyromancy, so divination by flame. Yeah, all these were listed as the forbidden arts. And of course, when you put a term like that on, there's a certain degree of mystique that immediately attracts the likes of me to go straight to
0: the scenario (laughs) inspiration. If it's forbidden, we want to know about it.
1: But this is a big part of why the Catholic Church was so against spiritualism, because, as you say, necromancy was specifically prohibited in the Old Testament. It is called out in a number of places. Apologists for spiritualism at the time try very much to differentiate between mediumship and necromancy, showing that they were two different things. And the Church, at the same time, was very much trying to prove that they were the same thing i think this conflict still exists to this day back on mesmerism though this manipulation
2: via animal magnetism involved trances and eventually evolved into hypnotism oh boy we've heard that one one of those again lesser used skills on the character sheet that doesn't get enough love (laughs) i don't think it's on the character sheet it's one of those uncommon skills yeah it is a skill (laughs) yeah A number of Mesmer's practices involved subjects linking hands while in a trance, as Mesmer used his animal magnetism to heal them – there's a lawsuit waiting to happen there if someone tried that in modern day – some reported psychic visions and the ability to speak to the dead.
1: And yeah, this term medium came about to mean one through whom the phenomena of animal magnetism are manifested. At the same time, the gatherings in which these practices were carried out became known as seances, taken from a French word for a, a sitting or session. So, yeah, there we have it. There we have these terms that would come to define spiritualism, taken straight out of mesmerism.
2: That should be a word that should have catched on for RPGs. But let's not. Let's have an RPG session. Let's have an RPG seance. <laughs>
0: Oh, like it didn't have enough bad reputation already. (laughs) Yes, I'm sure that would have really caught on. Also, it just sounds sexier when you say it in French, doesn't it? It
1: doesn't everything.
0: And then we come to the the stars of the spiritualist movement, the Fox Sisters. Now, uh, spiritualism had its true beginning in Hydesville, New York in 1848. The Fox family reported hearing strange rapping sounds from around their house, but could not locate the source. Rats in the walls! (laughs) Could be rats (laughs) in the walls. I mean, yeah. But they did have children. But, you know, it wasn't them. The two youngest daughters, Maggie and Katie, both children at the time, started asking questions of the rapping sounds, apparently getting answers. Another great, like, scenario... Obviously, this is a a piece of history, but great inspiration for a scenario taking that and putting it somewhere else, I think.
1: Yeah. And I think they did classic things like, you know, knock once for yes, twice for no, or or the other way around. But they also did things like, oh, yeah, can you knock 10 times in a row? And that seems much more childlike, doesn't it? Instead of just asking questions, it's sort of, oh, can you do this? Can you do this? Mm.
2: This led to them identifying the source as the spirit of Charles B. Rosner, a peddler who had been murdered by a previous tenant of the house. The girls nicknamed the spirit Mr. Splitfoot. I've heard a song by that name, I wonder where the name came from. Rosner was supposedly buried under the house. While remains were found there, they seemed to be from a horse. That's
0: just a random development right there is it a man is it a horse we can't tell well there is a man called horse they made a film of him after all
1: (laughs) but yeah they found hair they found bones and so on a tail at some point i think they even named the person who was supposed to be the murderer i'm not sure whether this charles b rosner even existed or whether it was a name they just came up Mm. with but There's something quite sinister, I think, about these kids coming up with effectively this game whereby they identify this murder victim, talk to him, and then identify the murderer, and people take that seriously. I I don't Mm. think that there was anything that came of that. I mean, I I can't remember whether I I read the details of it anywhere, but I assume the person they pinned as being the murderer, who was a previous tenant of the house, was dead, but if he hadn't been, well, that could have been quite bad. I mean, you can just imagine that's the kind of thing that would rile up a mob just from children's games.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely got feelings of, um. oh, what's the place around Salem?
1: Oh, the Crucible.
0: The Crucible, you know, it's got the kind of echoes of that to me. Mm. Mm. The foxes were reportedly driven from their homes by these phenomena, only to find that the sounds followed them. The girls said the spirit could now throw objects around, issue prophecies and
1: even manifest physically. Leah the oldest Fox sister, started reporting phenomena as well after being placed into a magnetic sleep by a mesmerist. So there we had that connection there, from mesmerism directly to this birth of spiritualism. Leah began to charge visitors to take part in what would become recognisable seances, with spirits playing her guitar and opening the Bible to significant passages.
2: I don't suffer from insomnia, but I'm thinking just the idea of getting two large horseshoe magnets and putting them either side of your uh, head is not a great way to induce sleep.
0: Magnetic sleep, though, Matt.
2: Indeed. The Fox sisters were championed by newspaper man Horace Greeley, who made them famous. As you would do if you appear in a newspaper most of that time.
0: And you wanted to sell newspapers. Mm.
2: Indeed. (laughs) One thinks these two might be connected. (laughs) (laughs) One of the articles he wrote about them coined the term spiritualism, replacing Ah. the previous term of spirit wrappings.
0: Their gatherings were still referred to as sittings rather than seances, though. Despite their success, the sisters became troubled. Both Kate and Maggie struggled with alcoholism. Maggie fell out with both Leah and their mother, eventually revealing... I mean, this is about 40 years later, but eventually yeah. revealing that they were all frauds. She explained that the girls had made the spirit wrappings using the bones in their toes. Yeah, they could, well, they could click their joints. Mm. That was one of the things they did. Yeah. Which is kind of creepy anyway. And, you know, some people get the creeps when people click their knuckles and toes and so on. And the fact that these girls were doing that, I just think is, uh, you know, I don't know. That's that's kind of a a charming, well, I don't know if charming is the right word, but... uh Quirky? An interesting element of the the story. It wasn't just that they were knocking, they were clicking their joints. It just feels kind of creepy.
1: Yeah, I guess if it was a wooden house and there were, say, empty spaces under the floor and so on, that probably would have allowed the sound to resonate a bit and amplified it too. If you clicked your toes on a floorboard and it echoed underneath, it might sound like the knocking was coming from underneath. And also... The world was a lot quieter back then. Mm. If you're in a house
0: and it has no electricity and it's night, unless it's windy or something, it's really quiet. You don't have any background hum of refrigerators or or any of that stuff going on. It's not something we experience very often in the modern world, but uh, yeah, super quiet.
2: Katie followed suit and condemned spiritualism as the greatest humbug of the century. Mm -hmm. I like humbugs. Later, Maggie gave a speech in which she denounced spiritualism as an absolute falsehood from beginning to end as the flimsiest of superstitions, the most wicked blasphemy known
0: to the world, end quote. I love that's how she said it, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) That was a marvellous performance. And talking of marvellous performances, I saw a play 12, 15 years ago. It was on in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and as with many of the theatres there, or the, the productions there, it uses pretty much every single room that is available in Edinburgh, and some of them are tiny. And this mm-hmm. was an underground basement room, which is bigger than the room I'm sat in now, which is only sort of four metres square, but it really wasn't very big. There were only two rows of seats, and the performance was called Splitfoot, which oh, yeah. was a term I'd not come across before, mm. but... Basically, we looked through the programme and looked for anything that was horror-based. And this one really stood out as being, you know, a serious drama uh, on a sort of horror theme. And I think it was a cast of maybe four actors. And we were in the front row. And it's just a a very small performance space. And they're literally... If you reach out, you could touch them uh, at times. And they were so physical in their performance they would be literally bending over backwards as we see in some horror films and and sort of evoking that sort of bending over backwards kind of contorting at times it was a absolutely stunning performance and the performers at the end were like dripping with sweat just from (laughs) it was like a hot underground room and it told this story of the fox sisters Mm. all the way through it was absolutely stunning it was probably the best i've seen some very good performances at the edinburgh fringe but this was uh well one of the very
1: best it's fascinating to me that spiritualism survived because you've got here the founders of spiritualism the the girls well now women who started the whole thing who admitted that it was a fraud and spoke out against it as we'll see later i think almost every major medium at the time, at some point or another, was exposed as a fraud. And yet, and yet people believed. And it still survives to this day.
0: And this is not the only case of people being exposed as a fraud, and yet movements continuing. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. For some people, I think it just, it challenges their belief. And the fact that I carry on believing just shows the strength of my belief, even though the founder was, says it was a, a fraud. I still believe. Somehow I'm I'm all the more powerful in my belief because of that. So clearly there's a lot to Victorian spiritualism and we're going to leave it there and carry on in our next episode picking up with how did spiritualism become so popular in Victorian Britain.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson
2: Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at BlasphemousTomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
1: Well, it is that time, once again, when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this episode. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people to thank by name.
0: Yep, the thanks going out to Alan Gardner. A nice one here. Also, thanks to
2: Mike the Reborn Viking. That sounds (laughs) like a great name.
0: It does. I had to check that it's not my friend in my D&D group, who is also called Mike... And is a Viking. I mean, not literally a Viking, but he is a Viking. But it's not that Mike.
1: And thank you very much to Robert Dunn.
0: And thanks to the wonderfully named Juicy Garland.
1: <laughs> oh, I do
0: like that. We've got some great names this time around. Huh? Also, thank you very much to Michael Kremin.
1: And thank you to Mike Ostwald. And thanks to Stephen Lawrence. And thank you very much to Simon Morton. Uh Aha, and a very familiar name here. Thank you very much to Dr. Bones. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do share it
0: on social media. Tell uh, people about it on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever else you're uh, going if you're on Mastodon. Good for you.
1: (laughs) Or you can just shout it through
0: your spirit trumpet. Spirit trumpet's good. That's it for Victorian Spiritualism for now, but as I said, we'll be picking it up again in uh, the next episode. Or the next séance one, might say. Oh, very good, Matt. (laughs) The next seance. So you've been listening to Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me.
1: Hello. BlasphemousTomes.com